Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. The Thing from Another World. This is the spot where it was first seen. And these are the first people who saw the thing. How did it get here? Where did it come from? What is it? That thing's alive, sir. I saw it. I shot at it. I hit it. I know it. Nothing happened. It just kept coming at me, making a noise like a cat me. Captain, it was awful. You could have seen those hands and those eyes. Captain, you've got to do something about it. You've got Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions. Astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. If we can only communicate with it. See? What happened, Doctor? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. Come here. Get in the corner. Now hold this in front of you. Stay by the light switch. 1.9. Needles hit the top. It's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Thing from Another World from 1951. The studio was RKO. The release date was April 27th, 1951, the running time of 87 minutes, and it was in black and white. I don't have the budget or the box office. We'll skip over that. But we do have Leonard Moulton's classic movie guide rating, which is three and a half out of four stars. And his quick little synopsis is classic blend of science fiction and horror loosely based on John W. Campbell Jr.'s Who Goes There? Scientists at a lonely Arctic outpost dig up alien, James Arness, from the permafrost and must fight for their lives when it's accidentally thawed. Tense direction, often credited to producer Howard Hawks. Excellent performances, eerie score by Dimitri Tiomkin. Screenplay by Charles Ladeer, and watch out for the 81-minute reissue prints. I have the 87-minute one. Remade in 1982, of course, by John Carpenter. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 89% fresh from 35 reviews. Their critics' consensus is, As flying saucer movies go, The Thing from Another World is better than most, thanks to well-drawn characters and concise, tense plotting. So this was always one of my mom's favorite sci-fi films, so I saw the film early on. And it really wasn't until I was an adult that I actually truly appreciated the film. And the main issue I had as a kid was that you really don't see much of the thing. But in movies like the original Godzilla or even King Kong, you see the monsters pretty consistently throughout the film, so that's what I was used to. So the thing from another world might be a slow burner for some, but the story is really well told, as Leonard Maltin said. All right, the main cast. So normally I discuss the main cast, but for this film, it's all pretty much unknowns, with the exception of James Arness, who plays the thing. And ironically, he's so heavily made up that you really can't tell it's him. 
Uh, Arnes would go on to be best known for his role as Matt Dillon on the TV series Gunsmoke. Also, he was in the first movie my dad ever saw in the theater, Them, about the giant ants. The director, Howard Hawks, and Christian Nyby, and I will discuss the reason for the dual credit in a bit, but Hawks was a top-notch and well-respected director by the time the thing was in production, and some of his best-known films at this point were 20th Century, Bringing Up Baby with Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, Only Angels Have Wings, His Girl Friday, all Cary Grant movies, Sergeant York, Ball of Fire, To Have and Have Not, The Big Sleep, and Red River. So Christian Nyby, prior to The Thing, he was a film editor, and this would be his directorial debut, and I'll get into why this was his debut now. So Howard Hawks was mostly known for his comedic films, as I I said, but this was his first sci-fi film, and credit initially wasn't given to Hawks for being the director, he was just the producer. However, some of the actors involved did say Hawks called a lot of the shots about the direction of the film. Christian Nyby, who was the credited director, was asked years later about him directing the film and said that Howard did let me visit the set a couple of times. So the theory of why Nyby was listed as the director instead of Hawks was that Hawks was giving Nyby the chance to obtain his union card by having a director credit. Nyby was a longtime editor for Howard Hawks, and the other theory of why Hawks didn't take directing credit was that sci-fi films were deemed kind of a schlock at the time, and the genre wasn't up to the caliber of film that the A-list directors like Hawks would direct. So one of the things that's great about this film is the score, and, and that really produced the creepy tension, and it was created by an instrument called the theremin. Now, many sci-fi and horror films use the theremin to create a certain ambiance. Also, for rock music fans, a lot of people discovered the theremin because of Frank Hannon from the band Tesla, because he used it in one of his guitar solos for the song Edison's Medicine, which was on Psychotic Supper in 1991. The cool part about playing the theremin is that it's unlike any other instrument. You don't actually touch it to play it. You move your hands around it to achieve the noises you want. So it's very cool. It's kind of like when you're in those laboratories or you see those laboratories in those old monster movies that you hear the theremin a lot. All right, let's get into the film. So while I believe that the 1982 remake from John Carpenter is more visually entertaining, the foundation of the story and the descriptions of what were presented in the original version were incredibly important and really shouldn't be dismissed. Uh, John Carpenter used this groundwork to create his version, and again, influences whether it be music or film should always be respected. The opening credits of The Thing from Another World is still awesome, and even John Carpenter kept the same effect in his remake in 1982. So essentially, the, the title card melts away slowly with gusts of light and air displaying the spooky lettering that says The Thing. The film takes place in Anchorage, Alaska at an Air Force Officers Club. The weather is miserable, as you can imagine. There's gusts of wind and snow. But inside, the officers are relaxing. They're playing cards and whatnot. And a non-officer named Ned Scott, he's played by Douglas Spencer, he's a journalist. He's on assignment looking for a story. The captain, Pat Hendry, who's played by Kenneth Toby, is sent on assignment by the general to investigate a plane that crashed at the North Pole. And a scientist named Dr. Carrington, played by Robert Cornway, he's in constant contact with the base Uh, that has requested that they check out the plane. And then there's a small crew, uh, the journalists, and a pack of sled dogs who fly out on the mission. So to add a little non-sci-fi drama to the mix, there is a romantic angle that has Pat and Nikki, played by Margaret Sheridan, uh, going back and forth for their obvious, you know, affection for one another, though it's mostly flirting to start as they've kind of known each other for a while. And Nikki is the assistant to Dr. Carrington. Dr. Carrington is concerned with the radiation he believes is around the crash plane. The reports make it sound like the supposed aircraft is unlike anything they've ever seen before, and they also believe it might have been a meteor as well. 
So the crew flies out to the crash scene, and to confirm that the radiation is apparent, the Geiger counter on the plane is going off the charts as they near the crash site. Once they land, the crew and the dogs head to the plane, and what they discover is that the plane crashed, then slid sideways, and then went underneath the ice, and it melted the top layer. So the crew digs out the plane from the ice and snow. They realize before digging that the aircraft is in a perfect circle, which leads them to believe that it may be a flying saucer. There we are. Holy cat. What a weird looking thing. Let me get a picture before you track up the whole place. This Geiger counter's going crazy. Something's melted that surface crust. It's frozen over again in a clear ice. The bottle shape apparently was caused by the aircraft first making contact with the earth out there at the neck of the bottle, sliding toward us and forming that larger area as it came to rest. With the engine or engines generating enough heat to melt that path through the crust, then sink beneath the surface. What could melt that much ice? Let's get out and see. Barnes? Take the dogs over on that side. Dr. Chapman, could an airplane melt that much ice? One of our own jets generates enough heat to warm a 50-story office building. It's part of an airfoil, probably a stabilizer of some sort. It's an airplane, all right. Boris, can you tell what metal that is? I'll need some tools. Barnes, bring some tools! pretty deep over here. I can't see anything but a dark mass. Steeper over here. Captain, may I suggest that we spread out and try to determine the size and shape? Right. Spread out, everybody. We're going to try to figure out the shape of this thing. Here's the tool, sir. Almost. Yeah. Almost a perfect. It is. It's round. We finally got one. We found a flying saucer. Can anybody see anything through the ice from where you are? Only an outline. Nothing but a dark shape there. Seems perfectly smooth. No doors or windows. I can't see any engine. I doubt if we find anything we call an engine. Dr. Carrington, this isn't any metal I know. Probably some new alloy. Get some filings for analysis. Right. Captain, I don't think we have a chance of chopping through the ice with axes. I know, Doctor. We think so, too. We're going to try to melt it out with thermite bombs. Oh, excellent. Ned, the journalist, believes he has the story of a lifetime, but then quickly is told that it's a military issue and that national security would prevent this from getting out without proper investigation. The crew, instead of digging the plane out, decide to detonate some explosive called thermite to melt the ice. This doesn't work, and they believe they've destroyed the plane. However, they discover from the Geiger readings that a large person is under the ice, still intact. Of course, they think it's an alien. So they use pickaxes to dig out their discovery. So they take the giant frozen block back to the camp where Dr. Carrington works. The captain instructs the crew to leave the block of ice as is and do not attempt to melt or break away the ice. So in addition, they break the windows open in a room of the camp to keep the temperature cooler. So the reason for leaving the block of ice as is, 
is the fear that if the body is an alien, that it might have a disease or some sort with the Earth's atmosphere that could cause an unpredictable reaction. The scientists definitely want to run tests on the body, but the Air Force isn't allowing it. And the journalist is pissed because he has firsthand knowledge of what's going on and reports already leaking to other papers. The captain gets a report on the download from the crew uh, that is watching the body that the ice is starting to thaw a bit and that they see the thing and how oddly it's shaped. There's no hair, it's got giant hands, and they can see its eyes like it's staring at them. So while most modern viewers would expect to visually see all this, there's something charming and almost novel-like about this approach to the film. So to describe the events instead of showing it kind of allows the viewer to create their own picture of what the thing really looks like. I think that's kind of cool. However, one thing that really feels forced about the original version to me is the romantic angle between Pat and Nikki. It almost feels like the studio felt the film wouldn't be interesting enough to female viewers unless there was a romantic side plot. However, ironically enough, my mom absolutely loved this movie, and it wasn't because of the romantic angle. She loved it for the sci-fi. So the next shift for watching The Thing occurs, and we get to see a quick glimpse of the shape inside the ice, but it's still kind of tough to make out. And this, again, is definitely by design. You want to keep the viewer in suspense. However, the dummy on guard duty decides to put a blanket over the block of ice since he's creeped out that it's staring at him. What he doesn't realize is that the blanket he put on it is an electric blanket, therefore causes the block of ice to melt rapidly. To keep the suspense, all of a sudden the music shifts to a more dramatic tone, and I love how old movies did this, and then all of a sudden we see the guard freaking out and shooting at what we presume is a giant alien. The guard then races out to explain what he saw. So the group decides to go back to the room to discover that the ice is melted, and it's the shape of a man which is no longer in the room. Outside we hear a commotion as the sled dogs are going crazy, and we see a glimpse of the figure being attacked and throwing the attack dogs off of him. The guys go outside to search for the thing, but all they find is a severed arm. The scientists decide to run tests on the arm and notice that the arm is not human at all. The tendons are like thorns or barbs. This description would be used for the alien in John Carpenter's version, where you actually see it. Also, there is no blood or nerve endings in the arm. There is like a green fluid, like a plant base. Essentially, the bullets fired at the body had no effect because it's not human. One cool part we get to see is that the, the hand starts to move to the shock of everyone in the room. It's just like the Adams Family and Thing. Well, Doctor? No arterial structure indicated. No nerve endings visible. Porous, unconnected cellular growth. Just a minute. Imagine, just a minute, Doctor. It sounds like you're trying to describe a vegetable. I am. Are you getting all of this? Oh, for Pete's sake. Quiet, mister. You know, Doctor, that could be why the bullets fired by Sergeant Barnes had no seeming effect. That's right. Merely holes drilled into vegetable matter. This green fluid here, like plant sap. We'll probably find it has a sugar base. Please, Doctor, I've got to ask this. It sounds like, well, just as though you're describing some form of super-carrot. That's nearly right, Mr. Scott. This carrot, as you call it, has constructed an aircraft capable of flying some millions of miles through space, propelled by a force as yet unknown to us. An intellectual carrot, the mind boggles. Shouldn't. Imagine how strange it would have seemed during the Pliocene age to forecast that worms, fish, lizards that crawled over the Earth were going to evolve into us. Look, Doctor, On the planet from which our visitor came, vegetable life underwent an evolution similar to that of our own animal life which would account for the superiority of its brain. Dr. Carrington... Its development was not handicapped by emotional or sexual factors. Dr. Carrington, you're a man who won the Nobel Prize. 
You've received every kind of international kudos a scientist can attain. If you were for sale, I could get a million bucks for you from any foreign government. I'm not, therefore, going to stick my neck out and say that you're stuffed absolutely clean full of wild blueberry muffins. <laughs> but I promise you, my readers are going to think so. <laughs> not for long, Mr. Scott. Not if they happen to know anything about the flora of their own planet. You mean there are vegetables right here on Earth that can think? Certain kind of thinking, yes. You ever hear of the telegraph line? Not recently. Or the... Is it the acanthus century plant, Dr. Stern? Yes. Go ahead, Doctor. That's your field. Well, the century plant catches mice, bats, squirrels, any small mammals, uses a sweet syrup as bait, then holds onto its catch and feeds on it. May I have a snack, please? And what's the telegraph vine? Well, a vine research has proven can signal to other vines of the same species, vines 20 to, well, 100 miles away. Intelligence in plants and vegetables is an old story, Mr. Scott. Older even than the animal arrogance that has overlooked it. <laughs> this one for Ripley. Look here. I took this from under the soft tissue in the palm of the hand. Seed pod. Uh -huh. Seed pod? Yes. A neat and unconfused reproductive technique of vegetation. No pain or pleasure as we know. No emotions. No heart. Our superior. Our superior in every way. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world, as different from us as one pole from the other. If we can only communicate with it, we can learn secrets that have been hidden from mankind since the beginning of... showed a 20-degree rise. Because of this rise in temperature, I believe it was able to ingest the canine blood with which it was covered. I believe that this... You mean it lives on blood? This is the best we could find, Pat. This doesn't work. I don't know what will. Where are you going, Captain? Find our visitor, if we can. One moment, Captain. Bob and Mac, check the storeroom again. Both in the outside door. Captain... When you find what you're looking for, remember it's a stranger in a strange land. The only crimes involved were those committed against him. He woke from a block of ice, was attacked by dogs, shot by a frightened man. All I want is a chance to communicate with Doctor, him. Doctor, you can do anything you want with it, provided it's locked up in a safe place. I think one of the reasons today's viewer might be bored with this type of film is because the action and suspense is all implied. It's a really up to the viewer to imagine what they're going to see. And part of this is simply just a different generation when this was released. People read more books for entertainment or they listened to the radio. Today, you know, television was in its infancy at this point and movies were the only visual entertainment aside from plays. So the audience was more adept to using their imagination when seeing a movie because they were trained to. Today, everything needs to be presented visually, which is sad in many ways, creatively speaking. That's why I love to do the podcast, because when I was growing up, I was still enamored with the radio and explaining things and, and getting things, uh, getting a picture in, in my mind. So when I do these podcast episodes, that's my that's my plan. That's what I'm trying to present to you is that you can visualize all this in your mind even if you haven't seen the movie. And if you have seen the movie, then hopefully I'm doing a good enough job where you remember the movie and then you want to see it afterwards. And it's almost like a book on tape for you driving or something like that. Cause you're, I hope you're not watching movies while you're driving, but you can listen to a recap. Anyway, back to the film. 
While the scares in this film are few and far between, they are effective, and like the scientists are investigating their greenhouse and they discover a dead dog in a case which has been drained of all its blood. So we are to infer that the thing drinks blood for nourishment. The scientists keep this a secret from the military. However, they can't keep the secret long because as one of the scientists, he's attacked when the thing returns to the greenhouse. In the greenhouse. The sink. Barnes, get out there and watch that corner. Somebody bring the first aid kit, please. Captain, this is my job. Bob, you better start warning everybody else in the camp. Does that speaker system work from here? Yes, a switch on the left goes all over. Attention, everybody in camp. Stay where you are and bolt your doors. Our visitor has returned and is dangerous. Stay where you are until notified and bolt your doors. Stay where you are. Oh. Easy, doctor. Easy. It'll be all right. What happened, doctor? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. When I turned, the thing struck at me. Go on. I don't remember my head. I must have fallen. When I came to, I saw Olsen and Arbok. They were... Give me some more of that. Get those axes. Go ahead, Doctor. They were both hanging from the beams upside down. They were dead. Their throats were cut. I crawled out from under... Was it still there when you left? I couldn't see. Hey, sir. Wait for me, Pat. I want to get a picture. There's an outside door. I can get out that way. Captain, we can get to it from here through the generator room. You do go with him. You mean you want us to go in? Seal the door with lumber, oil drums, anything you can find. That's better. Easy now. Give him time to get there. Pat. Pat, I want a picture. You get back with the rest. Don't be silly. That'll cost you drinks, guy. I'll buy him a beer. Ready, Bob? No, but go ahead and open it. We do finally see the thing, and it's pretty awesome. He's got a misshapen skull and fingers that look like claws. And again, the music score to increase the tension is terrific. So the captain is pissed at Dr. Carrington for good reason, as his insistence to keep his findings in the greenhouse a secret led to his scientists being brutally killed and strung up by the thing. It's all explained. It's never shown. Dr. Carrington is put on lockdown due to his insubordination. However, Dr. Carrington has been doing experiments from the seeds found in the severed arm. He is essentially growing alien plants from the seeds and watering them with human blood plasma they had stored. The plants grow incredibly fast within hours. A lot of this plot was used and visualized, of course, in the 1982 remake. The plants move almost like they have a pulse. The captain finds out what Dr. Carrington is doing during one of his visits to Nikki. Again, the captain is incensed with the doctor's actions, finding out that the blood plasma is being used on alien plants instead of humans that were injured, and they are in need of a transfusion. Also, the creation of more alien plants could cause an outbreak of unknown consequences. So while they are spitballing ideas of how to kill the thing, they realize that the bullets aren't effective, and neither is freezing temperatures, of course. However, fire may do the trick. 
All right, so the rest of the film is the group preparing to destroy the thing, and the eventual outcome is worth the wait. And again, I implore newer viewers to watch this film, not with modern eyes. Take the experience and and the buildup for the history of it, and then the eventual action pack payoff at the end is well worth the wait because it's only been verbalized instead of shown. And then when you actually see the giant thing, it's great. Also, the use of sound effects and the score is fabulous. 1.6, 7. What's that? Sounds like a window. And if you rewatch the 1982 remake, you'll realize that the foundation that was built with the original is really what John Carpenter used to his advantage. On your voltage now. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Can you hear me? Over. Anchorage, reception clear. Press General the button to speak, Over. Tell General Fogarty we've sent for Captain Hendry. He'll be here in a few minutes. Over. Roger. Over. Are there any newsmen there who can hear me? Over. Place is full up. Over. All right, fellas, here's your story. North Pole, November 3rd. Ned Scott reporting. One of the world's greatest battles was fought and won today by the human race. Here at the top of the world, a handful of American soldiers and civilians met the first invasion from another planet. A man by the name of Noah once saved our world with an arc of wood. Here at the North Pole, a few men performed a similar service with an arc of electricity. The flying saucer which landed here and its pilot have been destroyed, but not without casualties among our own meager forces. I would like to bring to the microphone some of the men responsible for our success. But as senior Air Force officer, Captain Hendry is attending to demands over and above the call of duty. Dr. Carrington, the leader of the scientific expedition, is recovering from wounds received in the battle. Good for you, Scotty. And now, before giving you the details of the battle, I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. So, all right, some fun facts. James Arness thought his role was just embarrassing that he didn't even attend the premiere. And, and Arness, by the way, he was six foot seven, which was extremely tall even today, but really tall back then in the 1950s. He also complained that his thing costume made him look like a giant carrot. <laughs> so originally it was intended to make the creature like a shapeshifter, like in the novel, but the, the, they had a limited budget, and that forced the filmmakers to drop this idea. But the early conceptual sketches depict a very plant-like looking creature, with one of its limbs looking like they're undergoing a transformation into a human hand. And eventually John Carpenter used this and did this, and you could visualize it with the better technology. 
So Tom Steele, who was a stuntman, he actually replaced James Arnett in the uh, end fire scene. So uh, Steele wore an asbestos suit with a special fiberglass helmet that had oxygen underneath. And then he used 100% oxygen supply, which was highly combustible. And it was just pure luck that he didn't burn his lungs while breathing in this mixture. So back then, the close-ups of the things were removed because it felt like their makeup could not hold up to close scrutiny, so that's why you never see it up close. However, the lack of close-ups kind of gave the creature more of a mysterious quality, and it actually worked to their advantage. All right, earlier I mentioned this was one of my mom's favorite films, and so guess what? We have the return of my mom, Ralph Vieira's favorite guest, and she returns to talk about The Thing. And I think that's great. And so she'll also talk about watching the 1982 remake. Does she like it? We know she likes the original, but does she like this, the remake? We'll have to find out. And I'll be back next week for yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, so we are back, and we're doing something a little different. One, we're having one of my favorite guests, one of my favorite people. It's only natural. It's my mom, Joanne. So welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, staying, well, staying safe at home, shelter in place. Right. Social distancing. And this is a real distance. For us, it <laughs> like, is because we always do our interviews in person. That's right. And so this one is like, what, 25 miles or 30 miles away? Probably 40. Yeah. Oh, okay. I got you to download Skype. So who? <laughs> so don't say that the older generation can't figure out technology. You totally figured it out. I, that's true. But I tell you, it's, um, I, sometimes I look at these things and I, I'm hitting the wrong buttons and I'm trying to find this and trying to find that. But um, I thought, well, I'll just keep persistent and I know I can do it. And sure enough, it, it did. So, well, that's we're going to go we're going to go back to the old school of, of lack of technology. But at the time, this was considered kind of I don't know about groundbreaking, but there was technology of the era and it would be 1951s. The Thing from Another World. And so watching it uh, back then, and so we, we were discussing before I started recording, uh, we don't think you saw this in the theater because you had only been five years old, but where do you think you first saw it? Well, I, you know, I think actually I might have seen it in the show, but maybe later on when I was a little bit older, or I could have, I know I saw it with my dad because it was funny because I can remember going to movies, seeing, um, the thing and um, the uh, the ants. Uh, oh, them. Them. And uh, it's funny, not so much with my mom, those, <laughs> those movies, but with my dad. Yeah. So um, I'm pretty sure I, you know, that I did see it and I, and it was scary. Uh, I was reading about some people that had reviewed it and said, yeah, one, one guy, he was six years old when he saw it and he, it really scared him to, you know, he, we go home and he have nightmares. Like mm -hmm. there's something in the closet, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's interesting. I, they probably re-released it. Cause that's what they would do uh, yeah. back then that you were, you were telling me like they would just re-release films and uh, you know, especially with like Disney films and things like that. It, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so watching it now, do you find it scary at all? And actually do you find it a little bit slow? No. Mm. In fact, I really enjoyed it because um, I was at first of all, I love the music that they had in those times. I mean, right. with those horror movies, it was like the same type of, of background music that they used when the earth stood still. Mm -hmm. um, that, and, um, and so I looked up who the composer was that 
did all the music for the movie. Mm-hmm. And um, his name was Dimitri Tom- Tompkin. I think mm-hmm. that's how you pronounce it. And um, evidently, he was um, an, he was an immigrant to America, but he became this most distinguished and best loved music writers of Hollywood, which I was really surprised. He earned uh, four Oscars and 16 Academy Award nominations. And so um, he did all the music. And to me, it was really great. And uh, so um, and as I was looking up his biography, it was was interesting to um, see that David Bowie recorded Mm -hmm. a version of a song that he had written uh, way back when it was called Wild is the Wind or something. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, and David Bowie uh, recorded it in 1976. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. And the guy, the composer, I guess he, he died in 79. He was 85. But mm-hmm. um, but it it the music, to me, always, if they didn't have music, it wouldn't be so suspenseful or eerie or, you know, um, especially about something from outer space. They kind of do this weird kind of music, you know? Yeah. They do like the, the theremin where it's like, yeah. Yeah. Like in the laboratories. Yeah. And, um, so I, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Black and white. I love Mm -hmm. black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, but the movie was like, it had suspense. It had, um, a little humor in it. Mm-hmm. It had a little love story going on. So there was a little bit of everything in it that to me was entertaining. And, mm-hmm. I, and I thought it was fast moving. I, um, I didn't think that it was slow or, okay. you know, and, um, and suspenseful. And then, and it kind of took you through the story up to the part of, um, so it prepared you that, something was coming. Right. What was funny though, was when they were giving the credits to, um, the actors that, um, James Arness always came up first. And I guess it was because he's so well, he was so well known Mm -hmm. because he was just, he was the thing. Right. But the other characters were the ones that were in the movie the most. Um, so, but it was funny. He got top billing. Yeah, that's yeah, that is interesting. Uh, going back to the music, that you bring up a good point. Like the early films, um, there was much more. Uh, you don't even notice it, but it does play. If it was missing, it would play a big. Uh, it would something would be. Uh, it wouldn't be as good, and so you would. You know, those old detective movies, and and even going back to like the Looney Tunes cartoons, all that has underlying music that they kind of yeah. don't do anymore. Uh, it was more prevalent back then, even in B movies. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the sim, sim- uh, now I can't even say it, but the the photography of everything. <laughs> yeah, the cinematography. Yes, that's it. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. Um, it, it was good. I mean, there were some parts of it that kind of looked fake. Sure. Uh, you know, they were supposed to be in the Antarctic um, or Alaska, I guess it was yeah. that one. And um, the icicles on the buildings and stuff kind of looked kind of you know phony, but but it's still overall it uh, most of it took place a lot of it inside and it was good the, the corridors the way the the lighting was and things it it made it uh suspenseful and and mm-hmm. uh, eerie so 
Yeah, there was a definite buildup. And uh, the one thing I didn't think they needed to do, I felt like they kind of shoehorned in the love story. Yeah, that, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. But it, it to me, it kind of, it was kind of neat because this movie was, even though it was, um, wasn't so much horror as uh, I. No, it was more sci-fi. Sci- sci-fi, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, uh, yeah, they could have left that part out completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it just it added another little touch to it. Well, maybe at and the I, time they wanted to get like the female audience too. <laughs> and so I, it was yeah, just a straight, fair. yeah. And I really liked there was humor in it. The guy who played the newspaper reporter that was there, mm-hmm. he, he wound up cracking, uh, you know, these little jokes. Uh, and uh, um, so it kind of lightened it up too um, right it wasn't all this dark type thing and, uh, and one yeah. thing that they did they didn't really do in older movies they would kind of hold back the reveal whereas today it's like you kind of get a lot of everything you know yeah. straight up you, you but back then i mean you really didn't see the thing until the last half of the movie and then and then it really kicks in yeah yeah so it was that's what i mean it, it all built up to you know it's it's kind of prepared you for well, some you know when they went looking for the craft site, and um, it was kind of neat that when they landed, and then one of the doctors said, "Okay, well, let's spread out and see," and all of a sudden it, it was like this round circular disc, you right. know, in ice, and then and then they see when they blow it up and they everything, and then the spaceship sinks or whatever, mm-hmm. but then they see this. The Geiger counter, that was the thing, too. They had this Geiger counter that, right. you know, was uh, and they got this reading. And so when they got this big block of, of ice out. So, it, yeah, it just uh, and then so then you were thinking, OK, what's in this ice? Because mm-hmm. they never really they say oh, it kind of looks like a human a man, but you, you really can't see anything. Well, that and then the suspense with uh, the guy that accidentally puts the heated blanket. On, oh, yeah. on the ice yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's missing and then that's that, that was kind of a suspenseful part too yeah. Yeah. yeah okay so you love this as a kid i remember growing up you're always you know really touting this and you're a big sci-fi uh fan uh and yeah. then you know eventually it's it's remade and uh you rewatched john carpenter's version from 1982 uh yeah. it's completely modernized and oh, what yeah. i liked is that they kind of took kind of the outline of what was kind of implied in the first movie and then kind of made it realized where you actually visually saw it, you know, like the plants and the blood and all that stuff. Uh, even though you can't really compare it uh, because it's completely, you know, modern. Uh, how did you like watching the remake? I didn't. <laughs> really? You didn't like it? I no. It, well, you know, it's, it's funny. It To me, um, it was like it didn't build up to it just happened. First of all, you really didn't know what was going on when they, the opening scenes and everything, here's this helicopter flying, shooting at this husky dog, right. you know, and they're wondering, okay, you know, and, um, and then they, they land and it blows up and they're still shooting at the dog and they shoot the guy. And, and then all, you know, then they, one guy shoots the foreigner guy that was going after the, and I mean, it never really built up to something. It's all of a sudden happening. I don't know. To me, it was like, okay, well, you don't really know what's what's going on until the fact that you think, well, let's find out. These were supposed to be Norwegians 
mm-hmm. scientists that uh, had discovered something. And so then they went flying to look at, at what happened there. But and everything started um, when when they started showing monsters and stuff that were coming out. Everything was gory. Yeah. I mean, it was right in your face type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more to me a horror sci-fi movie, whereas the original one, well, the 1951 one was not horror so much as the blood and guts and stuff. It right. was more sci-fi. And um, well, in a way, I think it's good to kind of separate the two, because if they just made a straight up remake of the original, what's the point? So at least, you know, the John Carpenter version is completely different. Yeah. Oh, totally different. Totally yeah. different. And, um, you know, I was trying, like I said, with the music in the first one, mm-hmm. whereas the second one, I mean, they had they had a score, but it was nothing that kind of made it eerie or creepy or anything. You know, it was just kind of. The, the background type of music. So, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting because John Carpenter is a composer as well. And so, like, he did when he directed Halloween, uh, he yeah. came up with the music for that. So, that's kind of interesting that, that you didn't yeah. really like the score. For I that. Didn't, <laughs> no, no. Um, the acting was good. And yeah, Kurt each, Russell's great. Yeah, each character played it well. But, um, you know, and it kind of just ended yeah. where you don't, you don't know what happened. What's, going to happen you know mm-hmm. which is funny because um well not funny but when i was researching uh, there was evidently a third adaptation of the mm-hmm. thing that was released in 2011 did yeah. you know that i did yeah. i didn't i didn't see it though but no and neither did i and it said it was supposed to be a prequel to the 82 film so i was uh, wondering what that would have been like did they find you know kurt Russell and the mm-hmm. other guy, or or was the thing still alive? You know the I, right. Yeah, it's been interesting to find out. Um, so you would absolutely recommend the original over over the remake. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> See, I, love, because, I, I well, love the remake, but yeah. Oh, it, it, it could maybe it's the age too. You know, uh-huh. I'm an old timer, so maybe. <laughs> no, but you like like gory sci-fi too. You watch some crazy stuff. <laughs> I do well. I do. I watch all those weird things. You know, dad. Dad comes out and goes, "Oh my god!" You know, now what? Are you, now what are you watching? Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was totally, it was totally different. Like I said, the first time I had seen that the '82 version was, um, I had seen it on a, a video, mm-hmm. and I didn't like it because it was at that time it was really gory. I didn't mind rewatching it this time. The gore didn't bother me as much, but I don't know, maybe. Before it, it kind of was like, okay, not another, you know. Well, thing. I'm I'm like that with movies that are remakes too. Um, you know, most time the remake doesn't work uh, because why remake something that was already great to begin with? You know, whether it be the Bad News Bears or I'm trying to think of a Karate Kid, Footloose, you know, movies like that. There was really no need. Um, but again, like like this one, uh, I, I think it was good that at least it was completely different, at least yeah. the tone and more modern too. And I'm sure that. Um, you know, it got good reviews uh, from, I mean, people really enjoyed it and thought it was a great uh, horror movie, mm-hmm. um, sci-fi movie. So, you know, I think it it all depends on what the person's into and sure. what they really like. And, um, you know, because I compare um, The Day the World Stood Still, I, I'll take exactly. the first version of that over Keanu Reeves. When I oh, I'm absolutely with, with that one. Yeah. 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 So, um yeah, so you know things like that that um, 
uh, the remakes. Um, mm-hmm. Going back to it was some of the the characters in the original one. I don't know if you remember there was a guy, and I didn't realize he was in this in the movie, George Fenneman. He was. Um, this is we're going back to the fifties. I've heard the name before. I think it's like Dragnet, right? Well, no, he was on the Groucho Marx show. Uh, Groucho Marx had uh, "You Bet Your Life." Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and George Feniman uh, was the co-host, and um, so he would introduce Groucho and mm-hmm. he, the contestants and everything. And, and so it was interesting when I was watching the movie. I said, "Oh my God, that's <laughs> George Feniman." Yeah. Well, actually, I am right. Uh, I'm looking it up. He was one of the announcers on Dragnet. Oh, like he, he oh. would do the uh, like the the cigarette ads and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was in a, a lot of those. Uh, and um, and uh, Kenneth um, Toby, uh, who was the captain, um, yeah. he was in a lot of those movies in the, that era. Uh, well, that's the thing. Like, a lot of these weren't big names, uh, but you you see them, you remember them in, in a lot of uh, movies prior. And the guy who played the doctor, he, he was good. He, yeah. Um, uh, the first scientist. He, he really played that part well. I mean, you could see how he was so dedicated in, um, you know, all of this and discovering and how he he wanted to befriend the thing. He didn't want it to be killed and all this, this stuff, you know. So I guess um, they talk about the science, the scientists and, you know, what they what they believe in and. Mm-hmm. Keep it for more experimentation and so forth and so on. Well, that's a common trope in a lot of the sci-fi films. What humans don't understand, they prod and they test and and usually they end up ruining it, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you as always. This is different, but at least it worked. And and congratulations on on technology. So, yeah, don't feel too old. You figured that (laughs) stuff out. Some people my age and younger can't figure it out. It's a good job. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Okay. Well, you take care, Brian. Stay healthy. And <laughs> I will. We'll be in touch, but just oh, yeah. we'll do it uh, through the internet. Sounds good. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the bad beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie (laughs) I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff, and yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to TeePublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C dot com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to TeePublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. 
If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for damn good movie memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbeam. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science! Are you ready for the hottest new podcast out there? Check out the Vieira Vault, featuring none other than Dr. Fuck Ralph Vieira. You will hear personal stories and personal songs from the vault. There ain't nothing else like it. The one, the only, the original Vieira Vault. On Podbean, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. Spreaker. God damn it. This is Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock Podcast. If you're like me and my co-host, Sonny Hollywood Pooney, you grew up loving hard rock and metal music. Check out our podcast where we talk to bands and artists that help create the soundtrack to our lives, along with playing some killer new and old deep tracks of kick-ass, guitar-driven rock and roll. Find us wherever you find your podcast to listen to, That's the Growing Up Rock Podcast, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. And feel free to hit us up at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Growing Up Rock. So sit back and crank it up.